And I wish I felt better, uh, but I don't. Um, we are going to uh, just go right to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's get right to the business here. Uh, this is the greatest day of the year to be a pastor, to be a Christian, but to be a, a preacher of the gospel. Because what we celebrate today, the historical reality, not just that there was a human being named Jesus Christ who came to this earth and made some fantastic claims, but that he died on a cross, and on the third day, he rose again. And that simple teaching, reality, sets Christianity apart from every other religion or ism, and indeed verifies that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. And everything rises or falls on the resurrection. Now, so turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and while you're there, in fact, you know, all kinds of things went wrong. This was a great week for me. Uh, not, as they say, so many... The ink, you know, at church, uh, on my printer... I had to order new ink, and I thought it would get here by today, and it didn't. But it's okay, because I have printers at home. Well, guess which ink, guess what printers ran out of ink at home? They, I mean, it's just, so now I'm going to be preaching for my iPad, and my iPad ran out of ink. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and it's fully charged, so I should be good. Um, some, I've never done, I, some of you know Morris Glaser, you know, he's like this evangelist, this is, highfalutin evangelist that's traveling across the world. Everybody loves Morris Glaser, and he preaches from his iPad. And so a couple of years ago when he was here, I looked at that, and I thought, man, someday I want to be like Morris Glaser. I have arrived. <laughs> now, even if we lose power, I should be okay, right? We'll see what happens. But while you're, so you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the resurrection chapter. But I want to just briefly for a minute introduce you to a man in the New Testament by the name of Apollos. Because the Bible says something very interesting about Apollos. He was a, um, in fact, it tells us in Acts chapter 18 and 24, you don't need to turn here. It says, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. It was about 54 AD. Now here's something about Apollos. It says this man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and diligently and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So he was a uh, a disciple of John the Baptist. And as you know, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So he heard John the Baptist and heard about his preparing the way of the Lord, and he believed it. But he hadn't heard about Jesus yet. And this guy was very effective as a speaker. And in verse 26 it says, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogues. 
whom when Aquila and Priscilla, that's a husband and wife team, had heard, they took him, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So they updated him. You know, they said, this is great. You, you preach well. You know John the Baptist. You know his message. He was right on target. He was the forerunner of, of Jesus, preparing the way of Jesus. Now we need to tell you about Jesus. So he got the update. And then it says in verse 27, uh, after they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly, and he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. And then it says this in Acts 18.28. I love this verse. About Apollos. It said, And he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures, that Jesus was Christ. He mightily convinced the Jews. So here's this great preacher, and he's got such an ability to exhort and challenge people. And he didn't just, you know, slightly convince the Jews. So where they were, okay, you know, I'm, I'm starting to lean towards Christianity here. Now, he mightily convinced the Jews. Man, that's, that's what I've been trying to do. And if you're a believer, that's what you've been trying to do. I mean, how many of you, your goal has been, I want to halfway convince people that Christianity is real. Yeah. If I could just do it halfway, I'm good. No way. We want to be a polis, don't we? Don't we want to mightily convince people? And what does it say? He mightily convinced them the Jews, and, and that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. How did he do that? Same way Paul did? The same way you and I do. How does somebody become convinced of who Jesus is, of Christianity? One answer. The resurrection. The resurrection. And so tonight, this morning, excuse me, we're still in the morning. Uh, the title of our message is Convinced by the Resurrection. I want to ask you something this morning. Have you been convinced by the resurrection? I want to share with you some claims that maybe you've heard of them before. Maybe you've not really thought through them, um, or maybe you've heard them and rejected them, but I want to ask you, have you been convinced by the resurrection? Because that's what's going to determine who identifies as Christians genuinely and who doesn't. So, three things. Let me give you the outline. I'm a preacher of three points, usually. In fact, if I ever have four points, brace yourself because it's probably going to be longer than normal. In fact, you might want to just say, cut, it, cut, cut one down. Okay, so I have three points today. And they're all about the resurrection. Number one, and it's all based, we're all going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, just part of it. 
First of all, and it's all the resurrection, the resurrection, the reality that saves a soul. Do you know that it is the resurrection that is the key aspect of the gospel? And that's how people get saved. Take away the resurrection, take away salvation. Number two, resurrection. And I'm going to steal from Josh McDowell, wrote a book many, many years ago that helped me, and I love the title of this book. That's what I want you to think about. Resurrection, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You ever considered the resurrection that way? You see, the reality, the truth, the teaching that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is evidence that demands a verdict. It's not something that can just be, oh, oh that's interesting. Uh, like, like, you know, learning about George Washington or Abe, Abe Lincoln, maybe. Oh, yeah, that, you know, he lived an interesting life. The resurrection and the, the person of Jesus Christ demands a verdict. And then thirdly, the resurrection, the ultimate accountability information. Once you hear about the resurrection... You're stuck. You're stuck. In fact, if you... Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even asking. I'm not even going to give you the opportunity to step out so you don't become accountable. Because the whole issue is you need to be accountable. You need to hear this truth. And you need to answer to God. And it's better to be informed about the resurrection than to be ignorant of it and go to your death that way. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First of all, the resurrection. The reality that saves a soul. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. That's another word for the good news. Which I preached unto you which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. You see the gospel, and then he's going to talk about the the resurrection and everything surrounding that. The Passion Week. What happened to Jesus? Culminating in the resurrection. And that is, again, look at verse 3, or verse 2, by which ye are saved. That's an interesting term, isn't it? I remember feeling very uncomfortable uh, as, a, as a religious. I grew up religious. I went to church every single Sunday. And I heard about Jesus dying on the cross and all the stuff you heard about. And uh, all of a sudden I went to this Bible study on a Saturday at a health spa. And all these Christians are talking about what it says in verse 2. This idea of being saved. You hear what I said? Because I didn't hear it. <laughs> saved. They're, they're, they're so free with this word saved. I got saved this day. And are you saved, brother? And, and like everyone at this, this Bible study is talking about being saved. And so I kind of felt like I had to fit in. And I remember saying it a few times. And I was so uncomfortable saying it. It's a, that's why I said, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, and then even after I got saved, I felt really uncomfortable talking about it. It is a Bible term. 
But maybe you, you like me, maybe you're uncomfortable with it. So let's talk, what does it mean to be saved? It's a Bible term, save, salvation, deliverance, mentioned multitudes of times, especially in the New Testament. And notice, it is the resurrection. It is that, it's the resurrection reality that saves the soul. If you are saved and delivered from hell, if you are going to heaven, which is another word for being saved, it is only because you have grasped the truth of the resurrection. Again, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you all, uh, which also you have received wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. In fact, look at verse 2. It says, If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. I'm going to address this, this statement. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, and uh, one, one theologian and ex- Bible expositor made this observation about this phrase. He said, the idea here is not that they were converted, and yet that heretofore no results have followed from their belief. It is this, which some, some might look at that, like he's saying, and you're saved if you keep in memory as if, okay, you're saved, but then nothing's happened. No, what he's saying is, he said, um, it is the same thought which comes out more fully in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. So look down at verse 17. They are saved by their faith in the gospel as preached by St. Paul unless, which is impossible, the whole gospel be false. And so their faith in it be vain and useless. And look at verse 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. And that's, that's what he's talking about in verse 2. If ye keep in memory. But folks, the bottom line is, those who believe in the resurrection... That's how you are saved. So I want to ask you something. Have you been saved by that message? I want to share the testimony of a man by the name of William Mitchell Ramsey. He was an archaeologist that grew up originally in Scotland during the time when modernism had crept into the mainline denominations and the mainline seminaries. And so here's this man, William Mitchell Ramsey, born in 1851, died in 1939, and he was a renowned archaeologist regarding New Testament things. But he grew up, uh, again, he was raised an atheist. He attended the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and then Oxford University in England, and he sat at the feet of theological modernists and skeptics who did not believe the Bible. So here's a man that was, he studied the New Testament. He was considered a New Testament scholar. He just didn't believe it. In fact, he was like many many liberal scholars today, one of the ways they take the power out of the Scriptures is they change the dates. You know, for example, we're studying Jeremiah. And Jeremiah claimed to be a man who lived at a certain time, and he gave some prophecies. And those prophecies came true. But if you don't want to believe it, 
And this is what they do. They make up stuff. So, and, and so here with this William Ramsey, he focused on the book of Acts. And he believed what the modernists taught, that the book of Acts really wasn't written by the apostles. It was actually written centuries after the apostles by some zealous monk. And that's what he believed. But there had never been any thorough study of that by archaeologists. They just assumed that you, know, that you couldn't prove or disprove something like that. And so he got this brilliant notion that he was going to convince the world as an archaeologist because he had the cutting-edge technology when it came to archaeological discoveries. And he was going to go to the Promised Land. He would end up being there for 15 years. And he even publicized what he was going to prove. He was going to prove that the book of Acts was not written by the apostles, but was written by some later-come-zealous monk who made it all up. And so he announced in all his theological journals that that's what he was going to publish. And, of course, all the liberals and all the people that didn't believe the Bible, they were so excited about that. We cannot wait for you to come out with your studies. So he spent 15 years doing all the archaeology and all the stuff that he knew how to do. And he came out with his first book. And it created an uproar. Because rather than disproving the book of Acts, he came out and said, you know what? I am now thoroughly convinced that the book of Acts was written by the apostles during their lifetime. And, and then he kept coming out with book after book for the next 20 years. And every one of them were, I mean, the, the liberal establishment was furious because he studied. And uh, in fact, let me just read to you from his own words. Um, or from a book that, uh, where it summarizes it. It said, he had spent years deliberately preparing himself for the announced task of heading an exploration expedition into Asia Minor and Palestine where he would find the evidence that the book of Acts was the product of ambitious monks and not the book from heaven it claimed to be. He regarded the weakest spot of the whole New Testament to be the story of Paul's travels. These had never been thoroughly investigated by one on the spot. And so equipped as no other man had been, he went to the home of the Bible, where he, sp- here he spent 15 years digging. Then in 1896, he published a large volume, St. Paul, The Traveler and the Roman Citizen. And the book caused a furor. And, uh, so anyway, he comes and he studies and he, he comes, becomes convinced that Jesus Christ really was who he said he was. The disciples saw what they said they saw. They were transformed by what they said they were transformed. And that means, in his mind, the resurrection really happened. And he came to face his own unbelief. He came face to face with the resurrection. And he got saved. He got saved. And ended up becoming one of the the greatest defenders of the New Testament. You see, when you understand that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, 
the ramifications, it is life-changing. Second, resurrection. Evidence that demands a verdict. Look at chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 3. This is the evidence, the resurrection evidence that demands a verdict. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Some are fallen asleep. Paul was writing at that time. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, He was seen of me also, as one at a born, uh, born at a due time. Now that little statement, that phrase of Jesus died, was buried, and then arose again, and then he was seen by all these people. The way that's summarized by Luke in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Luke puts it this way, to whom he, Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. What's that? An infallible proof. It means there's evidence that demands a verdict. You see, your take on the resurrection is so critical. To not have an opinion is to have an opinion of unbelief. You must Reckon with the claims that Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to share one other man's testimony. And this is also a man that has passed away. This man just passed away in 1997. His name was Richard Lumsden. He was a Darwinian atheist. And um, he was a, uh, a professor of parasitology and cell biology. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you? I took microbiology. I had no idea what I was taking. Parasitology. Parasite. Does that interest you? You want to study about parasites, Mike? You want to be a you want to be a parasitologist? Well, this guy was you know the cutting edge. He was a Darwinian uh, evolutionist. He was also a Zen Buddhist, and um, so. He, uh, he was teaching Darwinianism, and he was, let me, let me just read to you, because I love this testimony, and I love how God got his attention. He said, all through his career, he believed Darwinian evolution was an established principle of science, and he took great glee in ridiculing Christian beliefs. There's a lot of people like that, aren't there? I mean, they love tearing Christians to shreds in their minds. And to give him his best eloquence in support of... um, Okay, so one day in class, he heard that Louisiana had passed a law requiring equal time for creation with evolution. You remember when that happened years back? He was flabbergasted. And so during his class, his lecture in college... He decided to go, uh, wax eloquent on, um, he said, uh, he used the opportunity to launch into a tirade against creationism. 
and he gave them his best eloquence in support of Darwinianism. Little did he know, he had a formidable opponent in class that day. Not a silver-tongued orator to engage him in battle of wits. That would have been too easy. This time, it was a gentle, polite, young female student. This student, he says, and now I quote, This student came up to me after class and cheerfully exclaimed, Great lecture, Doc. Say, I wonder if I could make an appointment with you. I have some questions about what you said and just want to get my facts straight. Dr. Lumsden was flattered with the student's positive approach. And so he agreed on the time that they would meet in his office and on the appointed day, the student thanked him for his time and started in. She did not argue with anything he said about evolution in class. But he, she just began asking a series of questions. That's all she did. How did life arise? Isn't DNA too complex to form by chance? Why are there gaps in the fossil record between major kinds? What are the missing links between apes and man? She didn't act judgmental or provocative. She just wanted to know. And so Dr. Lumsden, unabashed, gave the standard evolutionary answer to all the questions. But something about this interchange began making him very uneasy. He was prepared for a fight, but not for a gentle, honest set of questions. And I love this. He said, as he listened to himself spouting the typical evolutionary responses, he thought to himself, this does not make any sense. What I know about biology is contrary to what I'm saying. When the time came to go, the student picked up her books and smiled. Thanks, Doc, and left. On the outside, Dr. Lumsden appeared confident, but on the inside, he was devastated. He knew that everything he had told that student was wrong. Wow. But at least, here's the amazing thing. Dr. Lumsden had the integrity to face his new doubts honestly. He undertook a personal research project to, tick, to check out all the arguments for evolution. And over time, he found them lacking. Based on the scientific evidence alone, he decided he must reject Darwinianism and he became a creationist. But as morning, fo- morning follows night, he also had to face the next question. Who is the creator? Now here's an amazing thing. Here's a man that, that you, you know how many people have defended evolution? How many people like this professor who would have been in that same scenario and given the same canned responses, but wouldn't have had the integrity to admit where he was wrong. I mean, what a humble thing. What a humble thing. This guy's like, he's answering all the questions and he's appearing real confident. But everything that's coming out of his mouth, he's like, wow, that's a weak argument. And then the next one, wow, that's a weak argument. How many people would have just in their pride shut that down? Because 
After all, the, you know, you can't say Christianity's true. Evolution is absolutely, that's science. Here's a man that was willing to say, wait a minute. Is it really legitimate science? He came face to face with the evidence that demands a verdict. And he got saved. Became a Christian. I want to ask you something. Have you reckoned with the evidence that demands a verdict? In other words, have you thoroughly searched the claims of the resurrection so that you either embrace them or you can confidently say, I know the whole thing's a sham? Oh, there's a lot of people that say, I know the whole thing's a sham that have never even investigated it. Finally, First, we had the reality that saves a soul, the resurrection. Evidence that demands a verdict, the resurrection. And then we have the ultimate accountability information. Look at verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead. Can everybody hear me okay? Am I shouting? Cause like I, yeah, because I can't hear myself at all. And I have a hearing aid. I've got this. I've got a microphone. But you can hear... Can you hear me like this? Can you hear me like this? Okay, all right. I don't think I'm going to whisper, though, the whole time. Because now I can't hear myself. All right, First Corinthians fifteen twelve. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And that's exactly what people are saying. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain? Whoa, wait a minute. Paul is going out on a major limb to say, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our preaching is worthless. How many people do you know that would be willing to put everything that they believe in on one key point. That's what he's doing. Verse 15. Yea, he goes even further. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. By the way, do you realize there's a lot of people that would agree with Paul? Yeah, you're a false witness. You know, there's so many people down through the ages that are willing to write off anyone that embraces Christianity or religion and say they're false witnesses. And Paul's saying, you are right. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now the people on the other side, they need to answer this question. What if he did rise from the dead? He goes on. Verse 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Jesus or in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now, and here's the great truth, this is the ultimate accountability information, but now, is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? You see, the information 
about Jesus Christ and what he did and who he claimed to be. And the evidence, the infallible proofs of his resurrection is information that will hold you accountable. And yet I I marvel at how many people will hear that. They'll hear the claims, maybe just, you know, on the fringe. They'll hear the claims of Christianity, but they don't understand the implications. They don't understand, wait a minute, do you understand? This is something you cannot just let it sit. And so I want to go to an illustration that I love. I use it all the time, but I'm going to upgrade it. Every time I've used this illustration, and it, it just drives the point home to me, because I think about it when I think of when I first heard the gospel. When I first heard the, the claims that I'm sharing with you about getting saved. And there were many of my friends went to this Bible study that I was talking about at the spa. Many people came, and many people heard what I heard the gospel, but they, it's, it's just like it went in, went in one ear and out the other. And I remember it, it took me a few weeks, maybe a month or two, and all of a sudden, <coughs> I began to understand the ramifications of what this guy was saying. So it's like this, and, and I'm going to upgrade my illustration. I used to use cheesesteaks, you know, like Pat's cheesesteaks, and I want to go, I want to upgrade, and... Um, just came across an article. My wife and I love a good steak. And I came across an article. And I think Siri knows this. My iPad knows this. My iPad hears all things. And my iPad will uh, all of a sudden start advertising things that I've talked about. And so just this week, up pops, what, what is the best steak place in Pennsylvania? How did it know? How did it know? I got it got my attention. You, hear, you ever hear clickbait? I clicked. And here's what it said. And by the way, there's so many sources and and just because something's on the internet doesn't mean it's true, okay? You do know that, right? Um and this was a group this was a, a source ready for the great authoritative authoritative source called Love Food. That's what it's called. And here's what they said. Out of all the steak places in Pennsylvania, the best steak restaurant, the place that has the best steaks, is in Philadelphia. And it's called Barkley Prime. John knew it. John, you must have read the same article. Okay, see, John likes steak too. So Barkley Prime is just 24 minutes from here. We could all go and have lunch there today. And... um. So according to the list compiled by this place, uh, so let's say, for example, so let's say we want to celebrate, okay? And we've got a, like a big anniversary. So you wait, you save up for years. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And so you're going to treat your beloved special anniversary to a $72 ribeye at Barclay Prime. And so you go there, you make the reservations, you go and you sit down, and the steak is served. Oh, the smell. And you get your knife and your fork. By the way, I apologize to you vegetarians. You can pretend it's a salad, I guess. <laughs> but you're getting ready 
to dig into this stake. And all of a sudden, some random guy, stranger, walks up to you and screams at you, Don't eat that steak! You will die! What's your response going to be? Now, if you just ignore him and just start eating your steak, would that be a wise thing to do? Some of you are like, well, if the steak's good enough, yeah. <laughs> but now think about it. Some man just came up to you very passionately and he told you, you better not eat that steak or you will die. That is a serious claim. Would you not agree? Doesn't that just a claim itself merit some investigation? Doesn't it? Wouldn't you be a fool just to ignore that person? I, I, I think you would. And yet how many people are ignoring the claims of the gospel that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have life? If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have life. And they'll hear a claim like that. And they'll just go on their merry way and let it be. See, in, in a situation like that, the claims are so astounding that you've got to investigate it. And if you like a good steak, now you vegans are like, I have no problem not eating it. But if you like a steak... And you, you're, paying, you're, already, you're paying the good money, and you want it, and it smells good. I, I don't know about you, but I would investigate it. I would say, wait a minute, sir, get over here, please. First of all, who are you? And why did you say that? And what makes you think that this steak is poison and will kill me? Everything he says, I'm going to be judging whether I think it's, it's legitimate. And if he gives me some real sound reasons to believe that he is of sane mind and that he really has a reason to believe that that steak is poison, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider it. But if as I investigate, I find out that this man is starting to lose it mentally and he's not really, you know, he's just, he's got all these bizarre ideas and and he says, yeah, can't you see the aliens in here right now? They're all over the place, you know. And I saw one of them poisoned. Then I'd be like, oh, okay, all right. And, and then I'd eat it, right? I, I would. But to just ignore a claim like that, folks, the ramifications. The resurrection is the ultimate accountability information. You cannot just let it be. You've got to investigate it. And I marveled when I was hearing the gospel. And all of a sudden I was realizing the ramifications of, wait a minute, what this guy is saying is, okay, maybe a lot of my friends looked at John Caputo's, the guy that led me to the Lord. He's one of our missionaries now. And a lot of my friends looked at him as just a religious nut job. You know, he's a fruitcake. <coughs> and... um. But I, I thought of the claims, I'm like, wait a minute. And, and plus he was a power lifter. And in my mind, power lifters were all cool. And so I, I, I was willing to give him a chance. But I, I knew, wait a minute, you guys, I mean, they just stopped. A lot of them, as soon as they heard this idea that you have to be born again and what the Bible was saying, as soon as they did that, 
A lot of my friends just said, I'm not going back, back to there. I thought this was going to be a free workout. And I said, wait, in my mind, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Don't you understand the implications of what he's saying? I mean, you can, maybe he is a religious wacko. Maybe he has lost his mind. But are you, aren't you going to like investigate it? And so many of my friends seem to have the attitude, nah, I'm, I'm not interested in that. And in my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. You don't understand the ramifications. Somebody's making a claim about that stake, something you're going to partake in. You want to investigate it. So I want to ask you something. Have you reckoned with the claims of the resurrection? It is too vital for you to not look into it. Because you know what's going to happen? And I close with this. In, in Philippians chapter 2. No, excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. Look at verse 34 and we'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Paul is now writing to believers. And he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's talking about people that have been transformed by the resurrection. And now he's saying, you know there's people that don't have the knowledge of the resurrection. And that is a reflection on you and on me. I speak this to your shame. You see, folks, someday, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so if you just put it, if you put it on a shelf, or you say, like some of my friends, I think one of my friends actually said, you know, when I'm old and in a rocking chair, I'll, I'll think through these things. How many people get to live till they're older and in a rocking chair? Hey, you can be in a rocking chair right now. Start thinking about it. Consider it. Because you don't want to get to that point where you keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then you die prematurely. And then you open your eyes. And you stand before Jesus Christ. And He becomes not your Savior, but your judge. Because you never quite took the time to reckon with the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray for Your blessing and your application of this precious truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid for our sin, shed His blood, was buried, and then rose again. And Father, we serve a risen Savior. And He will someday come back. The same Jesus that ascended up to heaven will come back. And He will come back as judge. And so Lord, I pray for those who have never reckoned with the resurrection. Uh, They've never allowed it to have a verdict in their life. They've never become Christians. Father, I pray that they would not put it to rest, that they would not put it on a shelf, that they would consider the claims of the resurrection of Jesus Christ until they are thoroughly convinced. Just like Apollos Convince the Jews, Father, may each one of us be fully persuaded 
in our own mind. May we come to know Christ as our Savior because of the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please take